Good morning, everybody, and welcome. We're up to chapter 139, the laws of Hanukkah, in preparation to Hanukkah. And to, today, our goal is to learn the first eight halachos within this chapter. In the first halacha, Kitzer, fascinatingly, literally says the story of Hanukkah in his, in his words. So again, chapter 139, halacha Aleph, here's the story of Hanukkah. The era of the Second Temple, during the reign of the Greek Empire, the Greeks issued decrees against the Jewish people and outlawed their, their religion. So we're in the blue one on page one, chapter 139, page 948. So the Greeks came and outlawed the Jewish religion. They did not allow them to engage in Torah study or the performance of mitzvot. So both the learning of Torah and the study of mitzvot was outlawed. And they set their hands upon their money and daughters. So the Greeks tried to take the Jewish people's money and defile their daughters. They entered the sanctuary of the Beis HaMikdash and breached its walls. So they broke parts of the Beis HaMikdash and defiled the ritually pure items therein. Okay? It's an over, oversimplification. Of course, it was a, a long story. It was a long story. But they, tried, they stopped the Jewish people from being able to serve Hashem appropriately, took their money, and they defiled what's pure. The Jews were extremely persecuted by the Greeks, and the Greeks oppressed them heavily until the God of our forefathers had mercy on them, and he delivered them from their hands and saved them. That's the story of Hashem saving them. Who was responsible on the leadership level for saving the Jewish people? Of course, because Hashem made that happen. The Hashem family, the family of the high priests, overpowered the Greeks and killed them and delivered the Jewish people from their hands. Here's a little mistake they made. They appointed a king from the Kohanim. So the Hashem then said, we won the war. We're going to lead the Jewish people. Why was that a mistake? Because kingship can only come from the tribe of Yehuda, which this explains to us why there is no tractate called the tractate of Hanukkah, on an aside. To the tractate called the tractate of Purim, it's called Megillah. But there's no tractate called Mishnayis called Mishnayis Hanukkah. We do find Mishnayis about Hanukkah in which Masechta? In Masechta Shabbos. But there's no specific tractate about that. Why? Because of this reason, because the Kaihanim, the, the leadership of the Jewish people at the story of Hanukkah, they went ahead and chose the leadership for themselves. Rabbi Yehuda HaNasi felt that he's not going to, he's not going to make a special tractate called the Tractate of Hanukkah. Okay? So the Hashemnoim family of high priests overpowered the Greeks and killed them and delivered the Jewish people from their hands. They appointed a king from the Kayanin. And the Jewish kingdom returned to power for over 200 years until the destruction of the Second Temple. Okay? So Hashem came and saved the Jewish people from the hands of the Greek. When the Jews... That's one miracle. One special miracle we talk about on Hanukkah, which is not commonly discussed. We always talk about the menorah. But one, one miracle is the miracle that we won the war. The second miracle, when the Jews overpowered their enemies and destroyed them, what day of the month of Kislev was it? It was the 25th day of Kislev. 
They entered the sanctuary and found only one ritually pure flask of oil in the base of Amigdash that was left with the seal of the high priest upon it and could be used to light the menorah. So we need to light the menorah. They get inside of the base of Amigdash and there's only one flask. A miracle happens. They find one flask that's ritually pure. It contained only enough oil to light the menorah for just one day. But miraculously, they lit from the flask the, the men, arrangement of the light of the menorah for eight days until they were able to press olives and extract oil that was ritually pure. So far good? Just to digress for a second, the whole story of Hanukkah is a wonder. Because we know... If the Jewish, if you can't find pure oil, you could light impure oil. This big deal we make that we found pure oil is not seemingly such a big deal. Because just light the menorah with impure oil. But one of the lessons Hashem was teaching us is oil represents chachma, wisdom. And Hashem was telling us at no cost can we defile can we allow the deepest part of our soul to be affected? And that's why Hashem allowed this miracle to happen, that this one flask of oil lit for eight days. Because of this miracle, we're learning the laws of Hanukkah. So we're in chapter 139, the first section. Because of this miracle that the, sage, that we, that the light, that the oil lit for eight days, the sages of that generation instituted that these eight days, beginning with the 25th day of Kislev, should be days of rejoicing and praise. So why are the days of Hanukkah days of rejoicing and praise? Because of the miracle of the oil lighting for eight days. I just need to say, classical question, hundreds of answers, there's even a book of 101 answers, the classical question of Hanukkah is, how many days was the miracle of the oil for? Seven. Seven. Because if you have oil for one day, so the first day is not a miracle. You don't go and say that the miracle of Shabbos is that your lights, that your candles illuminated for one day. You have a candle, so it lights. So the miracle was only seven days. So why do we celebrate? Clear, Moshe? Oh, yeah. The yeah. So why do we celebrate Hanukkah eight days? For fun. For fun is, <laughs> let's do it nine days, I'm in. <laughs> Chaim, what's the answer? Because it only partially. Oh, there's many answers. One of the answers given is that, say, say it out loud. That it only burned a little bit. One eighth of the oil burned every day. So the miracle started at the first moment. Oh, yeah. That instead of the entire day of the oil burning out and then coming back, one-eighth of that amount was bur burnt out. And other people say that we celebrate on the first day the miracle of finding the oil or the miracle of the war. Ma 101 answers for this question. It's a good mathematical question. It's beautiful. Okay. So we light the menorah for eight days. When do we light the menorah? We kindle lights in the evening at the doorway of the houses. This is fascinating. Because at the doorways of the houses, we're going to learn, really should be, we light it by the gate outside. Really, the, the mitzvah is to light it on the street, or close to the street, every night for the eight nights of Hanukkah to display and to publicize the miracle. Thank you, Hashem, for this beautiful miracle of allowing the oil to burn for eight days. And I want to share it 
not in my own home, I want to share with the world and I'm going to put it outside on the street. Okay. When you talk about these public menorah lightings that Chabad does, they're not novel. The halacha in its, in its unique form, we'll talk more about it soon, says you shall light the menorah outside by the street. Why is Hanukkah called Hanukkah? Why is Hanukkah called Hanukkah? What does Hanukkah mean? Hanukkah means, um, well, Hanukkah is like Hanukkah. What does Hanukkah mean? Hanukkah means So that, this is a good point. Hanukkah is, means menorah today, and I appreciate that in modern Hebrew. I'm going to take an assumption here. I believe it's because the Hanukkah is associated with Hanukkah. So, after they said the name is Hanukkah, the item used on Hanukkah is now called a Hanukkah. That's my assumption. What? But let's talk about why does the name have Hanukkah itself. It's, but you're correct. Hanukkah means a menorah today in modern Hebrew. Thank you for that. So why is Hanukkah called Hanukkah? Three reasons. Number one, Hanukkah. Hanukkah is, is really a compilation of two items. Hanu means to camp. Or, or to rest. Chafhei on the twenty. Chafhei is a numerical value of twenty-five. So Chanukah means that on the twenty-fifth day of Kislev is when the war ended and the Jewish people were able to relax. One reason for the name Chanukah. A second reason for the name Chanukah. Chanukah comes from the word dedication because we dedicated the temple. The temple was defiled, and we went ahead and we rededicated it. A third connection with the word Chanukah is. That in the, in the desert, the Mishkan, the tabernacle, was started the day after Yom Kippur and completed on the days of Hanukkah. It was only dedicated and, and brought into practice in Nisan a few months later. But we also talk about the dedication of the tabernacle of the Mishkan at this time. And that is why the Torah reading during Hanukkah is actually the dedication of the Mishkan. Because the Mishkan was completed at this time. Let's see these reasons inside. These... I was taught that it's an acronym. Chet stands for eight. The eight Nerod. Shemre Nerod of like Kipsler 23. That is outstanding. Hey, is 23. We're going to... So Chanu Hey. One acronym is that it means to rest on the 25th day. I believe what you're referring to is Ches Neiris V'Halacha Kebeis Hillel. We'll talk about that. That's, again, going to be something after we have the name Hanukkah. People put into that word an acronym that helped... Okay, sorry. A is 25th. Yes. And then Vav is... Six. Six. Yes. So that's the sixth month counting from... No, that doesn't make sense. What's the Vav is a connection, maybe? A pipe? Never mind, skip yeah. it. <laughs> this is good, this is good. Let's, read, let's see inside the three reasons why it's called Hanukkah. These, they are called Hanukkah, which means they rested. Chanukah, they rested. Because on the 25th day of Kislev, they rested from battling their enemies. Reason number one. It's called Hanukkah because they rested on the 25th day of Kislev. Number two, additionally, it is called Hanukkah because during these days they inaugurated the Beis HaMikdash Anu because the oppressor, oppressors had defiled it. Therefore, to celebrate these events, some authorities say that it is a mitzvah to have somewhat larger meals on Hanukkah. Okay, here already we're learning we should have Hanukkah, we don't have a, there's no mitzvah. For example, on Purim, there's a mitzvah to have a meal. It's one of the one of the mitzvahs. On Hanukkah, we don't discuss much about the meal. 
However, we should, we should have somewhat larger meals. We're going to learn, it's not a sodas mitzvah. It's a, it's a special meal, but it's not a mitzvah meal. Additionally, we celebrate these days because when the Jewish people were, were in the wilderness after the exodus from Egypt, the work of the Mishkan to the tabernacle was completed during these days. So again, during these days also, the Mishkan was completed. At these meals that we just discussed, it should have a little more excitement. One should relate to his family, the account of the miracles that occurred to our forefathers during these days. Where do you learn the story of Hanukkah? Fascinating. Where do we have the details of the story? We have the details from the book of Yosef and Josephus. Are we familiar with the book of Josephus, Flavius? He was a Jew, unfortunately. What? <laughs> well, well, actually, it's mentioned in Halacha to, to, that we should learn the story of Hanukkah from him. Really? Yes. That's, okay. So he <laughs> was. Yes. Yes. He he wrote an account, um, uh, an account perhaps from the Roman, from the Greek perspective of what, ha of what happened during that time. Um, nevertheless, even though this is a special mitzvah, that this is a special meal, the meal is not considered a mitzvah meal. Unless songs and praises to Hashem are recited during the meal. Which means like this. What's the difference between a mitzvah meal and a special meal and a meal? There is a difference. For example, for example, someone uh, I forgot where I saw it earlier, but a mitzvah meal, a sudas mitzvah is something. For example, during the nine days we don't eat meat. Unless you went to Sudas Mitzvah, unless you went to a mitzvah, a mitzvah meal. There's something special, it breaks certain boundaries. We're saying this is not a mitzvah meal, but it's a special meal. Okay, let's conclude section number one. We increase charitable donations during the days of Hanukkah. Unbelievable. We, I, we don't find this elsewhere. Listen to this. Because these days are spiritually beneficial for correcting the flaws in one's soul, through giving charity, particularly, particularly charity given to support support Torah students. Just one second, let me just repeat this point, it's unbelievable. Flaws, we're talking about Torah law here, we're not talking about a, the, the Kabbalah. We're talk, Torah law says, flaws of one's soul can be corrected by giving charity during the days of Hanukkah, and particularly to those students learning that could use financial assistance. It's just an unbelievable... So let's t summarize number one, and then we'll take questions. Number one. Let, let's summarize section number one. We discussed the story of Hanukkah, what brought about the Greeks trying to stop the Jewish people from doing what Hashem wants. Hashem, on the 25th day of Kislev, through, with the, the Hashemunayim, won the war. The Greek, the Hashemunayim won the war against the Greeks, with Hashem's assistance, of course. And they found one jug of oil that lived for eight days. And to celebrate these miracles, we light the menorah. And we additionally have a festive meal. We discussed two reasons. It's called Hanukkah, whether because they rested on the 25th day of Hanukkah, or because they... or because Hanukkah means to dedicate the temple anew. Additionally, the, the Mishkan was completed during these days. And we should give tzedakah to fix our so the flaws of our soul during these days. Yes, any questions, please? Tzedakah. Yes. On Hanukkah. Yes. Shabbos. Yes. You don't give tzedakah on Shabbos. Yes. You make a commitment to make the tzedakah and that 
Uh, it's a very good question. Does anyone know the answer? The reason it's such a good question is because it happens every Shabbos. Every Shabbos you should give tzedakah. Even Shabbos we should give tzedakah, but you can't give tzedakah on Shabbos. So what is the... What do we do instead? You make a pleasure. The ideal thing to do, a pleasure is outstanding, but the best thing to do is actually to give tzedakah right before candle lighting for Shabbos. And you'll actually find some people in their homes have on the candle lighting table, where they light candles, they have a tzedakah box right there as well. Perfect. So the same thing for this Shabbos before Hanukkah. Convenient. Convenient. <laughs> Today, if you, don't have to, if you don't have a tzedakah box, you can do it on your phone right before, but... Yeah. What we do is we give tzedakah right before Shabbos. Outstanding, exactly, exactly. Right before we light the candles. That's awesome. Any questions? Okay, number two, here we go, number two. Hanukkah. We don't, we shouldn't fast on Hanukkah. However, number two, we do not fast during the days of Hanukkah. However, on the day preceding and following Hanukkah, fasting and eulogies are permitted. So, God willing, we should not need to talk about such items of fasting and eulogies. But, but the halacha does tell us that we, the day before, after Hanukkah, you can fast or do a hesped, a eulogy if needed. Halacha number three. Working on Hanukkah. This is a fascinating detail about working on Hanukkah. And specifically, we're going to talk about primarily the 30 minutes that the candles are lit. The menorah, we'll talk about this at a later time, the length, but generally the menorah should be lit for a minimum of 30 minutes. Yeah, that's what we learned in a Hanukkah, in a Hanukkah book. Outstanding. At school. During these 30 minutes, women have a custom, a serious custom, not to, fat, not to work. Men don't have that custom. Why? And we're going to actually learn that the miracle of Hanukkah, what the, the ch challenges that the Greeks brought upon us were the greatest for the woman, and the miracle happened through a woman. And because of that, to recognize how the challenges were greatest on the woman, and that, that the miracle happened through the woman, the woman do not work for that half hour while the candles are lit. It is permitted to work on Hanukkah, so you could go to work, do what you need. However, women customarily refrain from work as long as the Hanukkah candles in the home are burning. So here the Kitzer says, as long as they're burning. But again, the common practice is for the time that, they're, that they need to burn halachically, which is 30 minutes. And one should not be lenient and allow them to work. The reason that women are more stringent than men in this regard is because it was a harsh decree on the daughters of Israel during the time of the Greek reign for the Greek authorities decree that a maiden who was to be married must first cohabitate with the governor. So the, the challenges were the greatest for the woman. Additionally, women accepted upon themselves this, stringent, this stringency because a miracle happened through a woman as follows. And this is actually a daughter of one of the Maccabees. The daughter of Yochanan, the high priest, was extremely beautiful, and the tyrannical king requested that she cohabitate with him. She responded that she would agree to his request, and she fed him dairy dishes so that he would become thirsty and drink wine, and become intoxicated and fall into a deep sleep. And this is, in fact, what transpired. She then cut off his head and brought it to Yerushalayim. When the general of their army saw that their king was killed, the army fled. So this is, we have two similar stories like this. Anyone know a story? There's another story in Tanakh. But two stories where, uh, talking about this story in particular, the, um, 
Say it again? Sisera. Right, by Sisera. So, that a, a woman came ahead, I believe her name was Yehudis. Yehudis? I think her name was Yehudis. Is that correct, Avamati? Her, her name was Yehudis? Who killed the king? And she went ahead and literally saved the Jewish people single-handedly by her tremendous and fearless act. And because of these two things, the women have the custom to not work while the candle is lit. Therefore, some of the custom, in addition, it's also explained to us the custom to eat dairy foods on Hanukkah in commemoration of the miracle that happened through milk um, when Yehudis fed the king these dairy products to make him sleep. We're good so far? So now we... we Okay, you know what's interesting, if I'm correct, I may be mistaken here, but in, if I remember correctly, in Halach, we always talk about latkes. And if I, we don't much talk about latkes in Halacha, I, I don't think it discusses frying things in oil. Now we've taken, we've taken the custom and said the miracle happened with oil, let's, let's do things with oil. But it is clearly mentioned the idea of having dairy products. So, all I'm, all I'm encouraging is that in addition to the latkes, also have something dairy. Eat some yogurt. <laughs> Eat some. Bingo! Yogurt. He knows what to do. <laughs> maybe, that's why we give, maybe that's why they give out the chocolate of Hanukkah. Well, milk chocolate. Gelt or milk sour cream with the latkes. You have it all together. Milk chocolate! Milk chocolate! Number four. Now we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of which oil is kosher for the menorah. What type, of, what type of oil can be used? And the halacha is very simple. All types of oil are valid for Hanukkah lights. However, there is an ideal. However, the, choice, the choicest way to perform the mitzvah is to use olive oil. In emulation of the miracle in the temple, what type of oil was used in the menorah in the, menorah in the temple? Olive oil. If olive oil is unavailable, he should choose another oil that produces a clear, clean flame. We want it to be a beautiful flame, a beautiful light. Alternatively, you could use wax candles whose light is also clear. Okay, so you could use any oil, ideally use olive oil. If you can't use olive oil, you could use candles. However, the mitzvah is to have a candle, not to have a torch. And because of that, they should not be made of two candles that have been twisted together. So your, menorah, your candles for the menorah should be one wick. Not a Havdalah candle or others. Yes. You know how a wick is made? Yes, of twisting them together. But, we're, but that's how the, the, the wicks in the menorah in the temple themselves were made. Also wicking. But we want to make sure that it's one wick and not two. Good, good. How can you tell the difference between one wick and two? So here's the definition Allah is going to say. It is akin to a torch. You know, I don't know. That's a, that's a question. I don't know the answer. I'll leave it. I'm sorry. It's a good question. I'm just being curious. It's a good question. But what it does mean is, if, just make sure that you have one wick okay. and not those candles that have two. Got it. Rather, each light must stand by itself. You know, one of the points of Hanukkah, the, the way we light the menorah, is that you should be able to look at the menorah and see exactly how many nights of Hanukkah it is. And so we want it to be a unique one... one wick that I look at it and it's the third night of Hanukkah 
The candles should not be made from wax of candles that were used in the house of idol worshippers because it is repulsive. Don't use anything that was used for avoid desire for idol worship. Likewise, just like for the oil, all oil is kosher, all wicks are valid for Hanukkah lights, but the choiciest way to perform the mitzvah, this is a more complicated one. Olive oil is more clear. What's the best wick? Um, I vote uh, grass, a reed of some sort of grassy type stuff. Okay, reed of grassy type. Do we got any other votes? That's just one choice here. Uh, cotton. Cedar bark is good. <laughs> the, uh, the best is to take Flax. cotton. Flax. Excellent. Cotton. Okay, cotton. Now, f also, flax would also work for this purpose. But cotton and flax are opposites. The Mishnah Barura says, maybe that's why, the Mishnah Barura says there, both of them would be equal, cotton or flax. It is not necessary to use new wicks every night. What? Linen. Yes, yeah. So that's like wool? No, opposites. Cotton and flax are opposites. We can talk later. What is flax? Flax is made from a flax. Grass. Imagine a grass, a blade of grass, and then imagine cotton. Okay, they're straight up opposites. They're made different, they're completely different. The plant is different, the way you make the wick is different, everything is different, they're complete opposites. If you want to think about it as a fiber or a textile, they're straight up opposites. What I'm hearing from you is they're very similar. <laughs> You're brilliant. I love you right now. So, we could use, Moshe, let's leave it for a moment. You're asking about cotton or flax? Flax. It's like a long blade of grass, very long, very strong fiber. So you could use any wick, ideally use cotton or flax. Now we're going to learn a fascinating detail, which is, should you use a new wick every night? Hmm. Now maybe for us this isn't such a practical question, because thank God we have everything Jewish, and you could just buy so many wicks. Yeah. But wicks, do you... <laughs> Having 44 wicks for the menorah, where am I going to get them from? These were challenges that we had at times. It is, it is not necessary to use new wicks every night. Rather, he may also light the wicks that were used on the first or previous nights until they are used up. I wanted to say one point here. There are many customs in many of the things we're talking about. Using new wicks, old wicks. Here we're learning the Kitzur Shulchan Aruch. Just to be clear about that. <laughs> no, I want to be clear. We're not, we're not trying to share all the opinions. We're sharing what the Kitzur Shulchan Aruch tells us. Let's summarize number three and then we'll take questions. All oil is good. All wicks are good. Ideally, we should try to use olive oil. Ideally, we should try to use cotton or flax. But, and you're allowed to use the wicks more than once. Yes. So... You say all oil, all, all wick, and I, I of course think that uh, there are oils that aren't kosher, uh, and there are wicks that aren't kosher, shatnas wicks perhaps, right? Um, uh, <coughs> at least one could imagine a, a shatnas kind I of can work. help with this if you don't um, So the question is, would, would a, an oil that's not kosher for eating be kosher for Hanukkah? Uh, so I'm, I'm going to let you jump in a second. Let me just share my, my initial thoughts. Regarding... We said before that we said before that a wick um, a wick that was used for avodazara it's repulsive. Uh -huh. So I'm just thinking for the moment a wick made of shotness that's not appropriate. Mm, okay. However, wax. what? You don't eat wax. It's not necessarily connected to eating. However, regarding eating, we don't learn. There's, Animals that are not kosher 
they're not bad animals. We're not allowed to eat them. But um, my understanding would be that to use their... We're talking about fats. So you're not talking about well, oil. Even just an olive oil. It's not, it's not kosher. In what way? What's making it not kosher? So there's... Uh, comes from a kazer. The oil. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Is that a good example? I don't know a kazer. It's a pig. The hoof of a pig, you can make oil out of it. Okay. Uh, God forbid. Okay. <laughs> well, let me just say here, the, to- the halacha is all oils are kosher. Period. Okay. Yeah. I... I uh, Clearly, we would want to use... The deep question. You know, deep question. Because you know, when it comes to non-kosher, we don't learn... Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I don't... To the best of my current knowledge, it wouldn't be a problem to can use I help? Sure. Number one, you can't make a wick with shotness. That'll fall apart. Two, you'd have to work really hard to do it if you could. Three, you'll never buy a candle that it is made out of an animal product at all in America. Uh-huh. It's completely illegal. It's unsafe. It's not allowed. Yeah. So does that help at all? Well, of course. <laughs> we're not talking about the normal. Since when in America can't you buy things? <laughs> <laughs> I promise. No, no, no. If you go to the store. In America, you cannot buy a pig oil candle. It's illegal. It's dangerous. It's unsafe. It's unsanitary. It carries... You'd have to sterilize it. It's absolutely illegal. It's not allowed to be sold in an American store. Why is it, why is it allowed to be eaten? We're going to learn... Because the vapor from the thing could have stuff on it. It's not... I'm telling you... I would like... I would really like, if we can, in five minutes, learn three more halachos to complete number eight, if possible. Number five, in this halacha, we're going to learn that if the menorah is going to itself become repulsive from the fire, you can only use it for the first day. Once it becomes repulsive, you can't use it again. If one lights an earthenware lamp, so once he has lit it for one night, it has become an old lamp, and it may not be used to light on the second night because it has become repulsive. This is talking about if it has not been glazed, of course. If it's a beautiful earthenware vessel that has been glazed, it would be fine. Therefore, one should have a nice menorah made from metal. One who has a means should purchase a silver menorah as a beautification of the mitzvah. So, we need to use a menorah that's not going to get repulsive. If it does, you could use it on the first night, and, and once it's not nice anymore, you should not use it. And ideally, you should try saying to have a beautiful silver menorah. Number six. When it comes to lighting the menorah, there are many, the, the, the Gemara itself gives three options of what you should do. Option number one, which is kosher, is one person in the household lights one candle. That's called the mitzvah of fulfilling the Hanukkah, um, the mitzvah of lighting the menorah could be done by lighting one candle each night. The second level that would be done would be where each member of the family lights one candle. That's this, the highest level of lighting the menorah, which is something today which is common practice, is, is where everyone lights a candle for that for the, how many days of Hanukkah there is. That's called mehadrin minha mehadrin. Today, everybody, when it comes to lighting the menorah, lights it in the highest possible fashion, which is every person in the family lighting their own menorah, and not only one candle, but lighting one according to the days of Hanukkah. 
And that's what the Kitter says. The wide, widespread custom in our country is to light the menorah in the manner of, of mehadrin, minha mehadrin, those who fervently pursue mitzvot. And what is the procedure? Each and every member of the household lights one candle on the first night and on the second night, two candles, and they continue adding one candle each night in this way until the eighth night, eighth night when they each light eight candles. Um, just to mention, when we say every person lights, married women have a custom that if their husband is lighting, they do not light. Now they can light, but when we talk, of, we're not saying they can't light, but when we say that everyone in the household lights, generally that's referring to the father lights on behalf of the family and his wife, and then, then the unmarried children light. They must take care. Remember, when you look at the menorah, you want to be a- able to, in an instant, see how many nights of Hanukkah it is. If you have 25 menorahs together, you're just going to see, and it's the second night of Hanukkah, you're going to see 50 lights. It's going to be very confusing. So therefore, they must take care that each person sets his candles in a separate place, so it should be clear how many candles each person is lighting. So, again, today we have a menorah. It's much simpler. But back then... Everybody had their little... It was hard to see how many nights of Hanukkah. So we're, we're saying you need to be able to be able to tell distinctively whose menorah is whose and how many, how many candles each person is lighting. Additionally, we don't want you to light it on the floor because then I'm not, it's not going to be seen. We don't want you to light it too high. Then people will just think that your house is dark. You're putting up lights in your house to see. So therefore, they should also not light in the same place that they light candles for illumination throughout the year. So it should be clear that these lights are not being lit for illumination, but for the purpose of Hanukkah lights. Could, could we do a little more? The optimal, the optimal way to fulfill the mitzvah of Hanukkah lights, where should you light the menorah? is to light the menorah in the entrance closest to the public thoroughfare in order to publicize the miracle. And indeed, this was the way it was done in the times of the mission of the Talmud. So literally, you will light it right by that fence outside. However, nowadays, when we live among the nations, we light the menorah in the house where we live. If one has a window facing the public thoroughfare, he shall light the menorah there so it will be visible to those outside. If one does not have such a window, he should light it by the doorway of his house inside. So even in the Gemara, it talks about if it's dangerous, if, you don't want, if it's a dangerous time, you could light it on your table. But here we're talking to think God, it's not a dangerous time. So you should light it where people should be able to see it from the outside, from the, through the window. Actually, it's interesting, the Chabad custom is to ideally do it next to the doorway. If one does not have such a window, yeah, you should light it by the doorway. When lighting the menorah in the doorway, where should you light it? This is so fascinating. And I need to point out, are you familiar with a little gateway when you walk up the stairs on the main campus? When you walk up those stairs from the sidewalk, there is a little arch. And on the arch, there is a decoration on each side. On, on the right-hand side, you have a mezuzah. And on the left-hand side, you have a menorah. And actually, that, the reason for that is to teach us this very halacha. The halacha is that your, your mezuzah goes on the right-hand side. We're talking about the archway, Rabbi Wilhelm. We're learning the halacha of the archway across the street. The, menorah, the mezuzah on the right and the menorah on the left. That, that's right. And, and the reason? Mm, they support each other. They <laughs> should be surrounded by mitzvah. So when you're... If you're going to light the menorah next to the doorway, 
it is a mitzvah to place it within one tefach of the left side of the doorway. You should put it within three inches of the left side of the doorway. Why? So that the mezuzah should be on the right and the Hanukkah lights on the left with the result that one is surrounded by mitzvahs. You're walking through com completely surrounded by mitzvahs. It is preferable to place a menorah inside the doorway itself, not before beyond the entrance. If you could put it... Isn't that so amazing? You're walking through... through mitzvahs. Any questions about the placement of the menorah? I'll give you a question. I won't give you the answer this week. And it's a very practical question in, in places that have built... Ah, we didn't. At the end of this halacha, I'll leave you with a question. Halacha, halacha 8, halacha chasm, we'll conclude with this. It is a mitzvah to place the Hanukkah light at, at least three tefachim above the floor. I don't want it on the floor. No one's going to see it. Nine inches above the floor. It should not be below 9.5 inches. If one placed them... And you should keep it below ten tefachim. So the exact... There's an exact measurement where your menorah should be. It should be above 9.5 and below 31.5 inches. If you placed it above this height, you've still fulfilled the obligation. However, you should not put it above 20 amis. 20 amis is 31.5 feet. <laughs> we said because we said before inches. You should have put it above 31 and a half feet. And if you have, you have not fulfilled your obligation because one's gaze, you don't see that high. When you're walking, you don't... You'll see, actually, there's many menorahs. They claim to be the tallest menorah in the world, and they're all correct. Because there's, there's only so high you could go. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Otherwise, we'd be competing. Who could build a oh, 25-story uh, menorah? Thank God Hashem saved us. He's the highest. <laughs> One who lives in an upper story may place the menorah in the window even though it is above 10 tefachim from the floor of his home. So even though it's above the 31.5 inches, it's okay. Remember, it could be up to 31.5 feet. However, if the window is more than 20 amis above the ground of the public domain, since the gate of the pedestrians in the public domain does not extend that high, it is better to place it next to the door inside his house. So if you live on a high place, if you live in a skyscraper, and you live above 31 feet, you should put it next to your door. You mean downstairs? No, if you live in a... So my brother lives inside of a building and he lives on the sixth floor. It's way above 30 feet. So if he puts it by the window, the people passing by in Manhattan are not going to see it. So better, the Kitzer is telling us better to put it by your doorway so at least you're surrounded by mitzvahs. Okay, let's summarize what we've learned t today. Yes, Micha. You want a question? What if, what if we are... What if you're on the first floor of this guy's So the Kitzer is telling us it's better to do it than by the window. Better to do it by the window so everybody outside could still see it. I have a question. Yes. Now, if the story of Hanukkah happened after the Torah was given, how did the Hachamim know all these laws? Ah, it's a great question. There's seven rabbinic inactions, and one of them is the story of Hanukkah. It's all rabbinic. That's a very good question. So it's not Talmudic. 
Talmud. It is Talmudic. The Talmud came after the story of Hanukkah. But it's not biblical. There's no mention of Hanukkah in the Torah itself. Right. But I'm saying, well, the Talmud was supposedly given at the same time of Torah. Right? Ah, good question, good question. Did Moshe know about the story of Hanukkah and Purim? That's basically the question. No. I think he's asking about the law specifically. How it was derived? Yeah, how was it derived? If it was given after the... Uh, Same as math. Math is derived. Same as the quadratic equation or anything else. You got numbers, you do... You figure it out. They're smart people. That's my answer. <laughs> no, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that, that, that's... That the is, question is, what based was... On, based on common sense it's, and based on... It's just derivation. The question is, what was given to Moshe at Mount Sinai? Correct. And the answer to that is everything and very little at the same time. Meaning, okay, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm not gonna fully answer your question. I'll conclude with a story that will, that hopefully will answer the question. Moshe Rabbeinu, the Gemara Menachas tells us, he went into a class. He's in heaven. He went for for 120 days. He was in heaven. 40 days and four, three times. He goes he, and he walks into a class. And he can't understand a word. And he becomes physically weak, the Gemara says. Like, I'm Moshe, I can't understand a word of this Torah. It's really, like, what's, what's, what's happening here? Not that he was haughty and he was upset. Like, just something didn't add up. And he's sitting there. He's sitting in the eighth row of the Shear, the Gemara tells us, I believe. And a student turns to Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva was giving the class in heaven. And the student says, how do you know everything? And Rabbi Kiva says, from Moshe. Moshe's in the class. He doesn't understand what's being taught. And Rabbi Kiva says, everything is from Moshe. How does that, how does that add up? Maybe Moshe was going to learn it tomorrow. No, no. Moshe was given the Torah, the five books of Moshe. He was given the practical halacha. But more importantly, he was given the 13 ways of learning from the Torah. So kind of like you said, math, the tools of learning the Torah were given to Moshe, and Moshe transmitted them to our, to our rabbis, and they used those to go deeper into the Torah. So it's all from Moshe, but Moshe may have not known that point. Maybe he didn't use a tool to learn that specific so detail. So, so all the tools were given to Moshe at Mount Sinai. If I may share? Yes. Micha said something yesterday that I'm not sure... I just want to say, Moshe, I appreciate you stayed for one halakha. One more? No, 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 I appreciate you stayed. You said only okay. for one. You stayed for the whole. Thank right. you very much. Micha said something.